0: The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources.
1: I believe it still ranks as one of the stupidest things that I've ever done. What a way to begin a sermon. Um, <laughs> I was on a summer evangelism project with a parachurch group on uh, in New Hampshire, uh, Hampton Beach, New Hampshire, and uh, a tropical storm had sat off the coast for a, a day or so, and it whipped the, uh, uh, the waves into a frenzy. And uh, the next day, right in the middle of the summer, there was no one on the beach. The beach wasn't closed, but it didn't need to be. Nobody in their right minds would go swim in the ocean that day except for me and a friend of mine. Uh, I'd never seen waves so high and I enjoyed body surfing and it looked like a wahoo and it was the closest I was ever going to get to those kind of waves. So the two of us us went out and we started swimming and body surfing and what a time we had. We had a great time Um, until we started to notice that we were getting further and further away from the shore and that we were caught somewhat in a riptide and we started getting scared. I I said kind of lightly to my friend, his name was Chaz, I said, don't you think we ought to start heading in? He said, good idea. Uh, That took us 45 minutes just to get in. I'll never forget that. We'd ride a wave in about halfway in and then swim as hard as we could just to maintain our position more or less in that place. And then ride another wave halfway in and in this way we dropped exhausted on the sand, glad to be alive. And I resolved never to swim again after a tropical storm or hurricane in the ocean, no matter how dramatic the waves. Well, there are times, I think, that as we look at current events, We as Christians can feel very much like that. We're caught in a riptide. We have little or no control over where we're going. That even death could face us, depending on the magnitude of the trial. And uh, we can feel very insecure in those situations. We like to have control. And the fact is, that's an illusion. We have very little. And frankly, for the most part, since the church is made up of, of not many who are wise, not many who are influential, not many of noble birth, we have even less than the average people. We are not the king in the world. I'm talking about the church as a whole around the world. We are more passive when it comes to current events than even those great people of the world who uh, think that they are in charge and really aren't. But we know we're not in charge. And so we have to look more than ever before to the sovereign God who rules over history. And as we look in this CNN age that we live in, and and, and that's something that's really just come on in the last few decades, where uh, something negative, something significant can happen anywhere in the world, and we can know about it almost while it's happening. I still remember during the first Gulf War, uh, Peter Arnett and some other CNN correspondents standing on the uh, roof of the Al Rashid Hotel in downtown Baghdad while the, um, the, the bombing started, starting the war. And it's kind of gave you a you-are-there feel like we had never experienced before. And CNN has just continued since then. And whether it's a, a typhoon or a hurricane or an earthquake or a war or something like that, you can be there and you can see it. And I think it gives you a sense of the verse in Isaiah 17 that we're going to look at today. You look at verse 12 and 13, it says, Oh, the raging of many nations, they rage like the raging sea. Oh, the uproar of the peoples, they roar like the roaring of great waters. Although the people roar like the roar of surging waters. When He rebukes them, they flee far away, driven before the wind, like chaff on the hills, like tumbleweed before a gale. Those verses speak of the churning of the nations. Just the great power and the convulsive Effect of one nation after another crashing into each other, each of them vying for supremacy in the world or for for oil drilling rights or for gold or control over a piece of property, something like that. But it's the surging, the raging of the nations. And the church, the believers in Christ, are, are really like flotsam and jetsam sometimes floating on the surface, can do very little about it. And therefore, it's good to know what this verse, this passage, and what we've seen in Isaiah teaches that God is sovereign over the nations, that he sits on his throne and rules over all of these things, and that we can believe that there is nothing random happening on the face of the earth, that everything is for a purpose and that God is ruling over all things, though we don't understand it, though we can't know it. And so we have the ragings of the nations described here, and I think the... uh, The root cause really just comes down to the heart of man. Because we are not at peace with God within our own hearts, we are not at peace with each other. Because of man's original fall into sin, the world is somewhat physically, the world, the climate, the earth is at war with us and we with the earth. And so we're in trouble because of sin. It says in Isaiah 57, 20 and 21, the wicked are like the tossing sea which cannot rest, whose waves cast up mire and mud. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Since the year 2000, one website tells us that there have been 142 riots in the world. 142 riots. Many of us don't know that in April of this year, there were riots in Haiti and Bangladesh and Mozambique over the spiraling cost of food. And what is just kind of an annoyance for us at Kroger and Food Lion was desperate for them in terms of even getting enough to eat and survive. Probably all of it tied to the rising costs of oil. But there are many other causes of riots over the years. There's political unrest. Many of us can remember the demonstrations in Tiananmen Square in 1989 and what happened there as hundreds of thousands of Chinese crowded in there, clamoring for political change. Uh, race, racial tensions can be the cause of riots. In 1998, there were race uh, riots in Jakarta, Indonesia, between native Indonesians and ethnic Chinese. Religion can be a cause of, of riots. I think since uh, 1979, when the hostages were taken by the Iranian students, we've seen images of, of Muslim demonstrations almost every week, fists in the air and anger. Uh, So religion can be cause of it. Uh, The town where the Taj Mahal was in uh, 2007, I'm sorry, there were angry uh, mobs uh, stirred up because there was an accidental death of an Islamic youth. And so there were riots between Hindus and and Muslims. Anti-war demonstrations, food shortages, unemployment, housing shortages, grievances among prison inmates, gang violence, natural disasters leading to other physical problems and shortages... Excessive pollution, even sports can cause riots. There are soccer riots in Europe all the time. And it's very nationalistic, but it goes on. Lots of violence, lots of anger, the seething rage of the nations. They rage like the roiling, uh, turbulent storm after a hurricane or a tropical storm. And it comes from the fact that we're not at peace with God. And therefore, we're not at peace with each other. And more potently, you see it in the rise and fall of the world, the rise and fall of one controlling regime after another, one empire after another, invasion by one seething power of another uh, country's territory, the raging of many nations, they rage like the raging sea, they roar like the roaring of great waters, the relentless ocean, undulating and frothy, whipped by the internal drives of sinful human nature, what they want. What causes, James 4, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something and don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. And this is what's whipping the nations up into a frenzy. But behind it all is the rage of Satan. We've already learned from Isaiah 14 of Satan's fall and how Satan was ambitious, not not content, not satisfied with what God had assigned to him. However great his his personal uh, beauty and his personal wisdom and his powerful position, it wasn't enough for him. And he was ambitious and covetous and wanted to rise up and he gave us those five I wills, the ambitions of Satan. Satan rebelled against God and therefore God cast him down to the earth and he put him on a timetable for his ultimate destruction, as we saw. Revelation 12, 12. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. When Adam, our federal head, our representative, ate the fruit of the forbidden tree, when he ate from that fruit... He, in effect, joined Satan in his rebellion against God. And therefore, he also, man, put on a timetable toward his ultimate destruction. And therefore, we, as a race, are like Satan, filled with rage because we know our time is short. And hence, the uproars of the nations. Now, the ultimate rage is directed toward God and toward his Christ. That's where the real raging comes. Psalm 2 makes this plain. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against His anointed one, His Christ, His Messiah. Let us break their chains asunder, they say, throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. He laughs at it, but that's where it is. It's a hatred against God and against His rule, against Christ and against His authority. That's the nature of this raging that goes on. Now, the immediate context here in Isaiah 17 is of the Assyrian invasion, as we've seen. This is in the Oracle of the Nations here, these uh, chapters from chapter uh, 13 of Isaiah up through 23. And in the Oracles of the Nations, uh, this Jewish prophet is describing political situations that would be alien to us. We wouldn't care that much about them, perhaps. They happened a long time ago. They were resolved a long time ago. But there are two things you need to know about the Bible that make it immediately relevant and applicable. First of all, that God never changes. He never changes. He's the same yesterday and today and forever. And what we can learn about God back in Isaiah's time 27 centuries ago is still true today. Now, he doesn't have to act in any given way. He can do whatever he chooses. But I'm just saying he never changes. And if we can learn something about God's character and his nature, his attributes from something in the Bible, it's still true today. Second of all, we don't change either. I know we may wear different clothing, we may have advanced technology, but we have the same passions, we have the same lusts, we have the same drives and desires, the same thinking patterns, we're the same. And so therefore, when we see how God interacts with sinners 27 centuries ago, it should matter to us today. We should take it as a warning to flee the wrath to come. And so the judgment on Syria here and and, uh, Ephraim... Uh, Damascus and Ephraim uh, is a judgment on peoples that may seem obsolete to us, but these factors are still with us. The fact that God never changes and that man never changes. And so, Assyria was to invade uh, Damascus, the Arameans, and also Ephraim, verses 1 through 6 is described. Look at verse 1. An oracle concerning Damascus. Behold, Damascus will no longer be a city, but will become a heap of ruins. Damascus was the capital of Syria. Not to be confused with Syria. They're also known as the Arameans. It was a small nation along with all those others, the Moabites and Edomites and uh, the northern and southern kingdom of the Jews. Uh, these were the, Assyria, the, the syrians uh, Damascus. And Damascus is their capital city. Now, Damascus has the distinction uh, from what I've found of being the longest inhabited, continuously inhabited city on the face of the earth. People have been living there for centuries, for millennia. Rome is called the Eternal City, but Damascus, Syria was flourishing a couple of thousand years before Rome was founded in 753 BC. It was the capital of the Syrian nation in Isaiah's day, also known as Aram, that nation was. One of the most strategic cities in the ancient Near East. It stood at the mouth of a natural funnel through which uh, ran the only convenient land route route between Mesopotamia and uh, Egypt. And so everybody had to go down through Damascus. And it positioned them very well for trade and for influence. Remember back in Isaiah 7 when King Ahaz was was terrified by an alliance between these two countries, Syria and Ephraim. Ephraim, the northern kingdom of the Jews, and Syria allied themselves against Judah. And you remember that Isaiah at that time predicted their destruction. Here is the second prediction. It says in verses 1 and 2, Behold, Damascus will no longer be a city, but will become a heap of ruins. The cities of Aurora will be deserted and left to flocks, which will lie down with no one to make them afraid. But it isn't just the Arameans that are going to be judged, it's also the northern, the ten tribes of the Jews, Ephraim. Ephraim was the name of the northern kingdom of Israel. They were apostate right from the beginning of their history. You remember what happened that Solomon uh, was led into idolatry by his foreign wives. And God chose to judge him in the next generation through his son, Rehoboam. And so the twelve tribes were split up. Ten tribes went to the northern kingdom under Jeroboam, son of Nebat. Right from the beginning, he led the Israelites, the northern kingdom, into sin. Because he did not want those ten tribes going three times a year back to Jerusalem to the city of David. He didn't want them going there because he thought that he would lose his power and his influence. So he set up his own religion with his own priests and his own idols, Golden calves in Bethel and Dan, and immediately led those ten tribes into idolatrous worship. Pretty soon after that, they were worshiping in whatever way the nations worshipped around them. They became literally, in, in some sense, no different than any of the pagan peoples around them. A godless nation, those northern ten tribes. And so... Uh, They share in the destruction of the godless around them. Look at verse 3. The fortified city will disappear from Ephraim and royal power from Damascus. The remnant of Aram will be like the glory of the Israelites, declares the Lord Almighty. Verse 4 and 5, In that day the glory of Jacob will fade, the fat of his body will waste away. It will be as as when a reaper gathers the standing grain and harvests the grain with his arm, as when a man gleans heads of grain in the valley of Ephraim. The picture here is of a formerly healthy man, and now he's lost so much weight through illness, or perhaps like a, a prisoner of war. You come up on those that were in the Japanese concentration camps or the Nazi concentration camps with their skin barely hanging on their bones. They're like living skeletons. That's the image here, the fat of the body completely wasted away. That's what the the former health and prosperity of these two countries will be like. And the end result in verse 9 is desolation. In that day, it says, their strong cities which they left because of the Israelites will be like the places abandoned of thickets and undergrowth and all will be desolation. Well, how does this judgment come? Well, it comes in the usual way. It comes through the invasion of the Assyrians. It's what what they do. The Assyrians coveted their land and in they came. But we know what's going to happen to the Assyrians too. They're going to be destroyed as well. So the nations, they rise, they fall, they come, they go, they covet, they invade, they win, they lose. All of it for earthly glory and earthly pleasure and earthly conquest. And none of it means anything eternally. For all of them stand under the judgment of God. The real story of history, the real story of human beings' relationship to Almighty God. That's what causes everything. It's because of that that we're in the situations that we're in now. And the rise and fall of the nations is orchestrated because of that, because of human beings and their idolatry. And yet in the midst of all of that, their idolatry, look at verse 6. Some. Gleanings will remain of Israel. This is a remnant for Israel that God promises. Some gleanings of Israel remain as when an olive tree is beaten, leaving two or three olives on the topmost branches of four or five on the fruitful boughs, declares the Lord, the God of Israel. It says in Romans 11, God's gifts and His calling are irrevocable. And no matter how godless those ten tribes were, they're still descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And He's going to leave a remnant by His sovereign grace, though they don't deserve it. Who does? Judah doesn't deserve it either. None of us does. But by his sovereignty, he's going to leave these handful of sick-looking olives that nobody wants. Physically, what that looked like was after the Assyrian and Babylonian exiles, there were just some of the poorest in the land left to just kind of farm it and be there. In Jeremiah 39.10, it says, "Nebuzaradan, the commander of the guard, left behind in the land of Judah some of the poor people who owned nothing. And at that time, he gave them vineyards and fields. So God doesn't totally give the Jews over to destruction, even though they are no better than their Gentile neighbors. Now, as I've mentioned, the root cause of this judgment is clear. It's idolatry. Verse 8 mentions their altars, the work of their hands, the Asherah poles, the incense altars that their fingers have made. The essence of idolatry is worshiping and serving created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. To worship what you do. To worship what you make with your hands. Now that's idolatry. To worship and serve created things. It is the ultimate foolishness. To exchange the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. And to worship ultimately man in all his glory. In all of his creative power. Later on in this very book, Isaiah is going to lampoon idolatry with some of the most poignant sarcasm that you'll find in any prophetic writing. Isaiah forty four twelve through 17 talks about the foolishness of crafting an idol and then falling down and worshiping it. That's what he says. The blacksmith takes a tool and works at it with the coals. He shapes it, an idol with his hammers. He forges it with the might of his arm. He gets hungry and loses his strength. He drinks no water and grows faint. The carpenter measures with a line and makes an outline with a marker. He roughs it out with chisels and marks it with compasses. He shapes it in the form of man, of man in all his glory, that it may dwell in a shrine. He cuts down cedars or perhaps took a cypress or an oak. He let it grow among the trees of the forest or planted a pine and the rain made it grow. It is man's fuel for burning. Some of it he takes and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread, but... Out of the rest, he fashions a god and worships it. He makes an idol and bows down to it. Half of the wood, he burns in the fire. Over it, prepares his meal. He roasts his meat and eats his fill. He also warms himself and says, Ah, I'm warm. I see the fire. From the rest, he makes a god, his idol. He bows down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Save me, you are my god. In the end, there's just two religions. Worship of the true living God and idolatry. And for the longest time, I would say, even in my own ministry as a preacher, I underestimated the significance of the sin of idolatry. You know, you read the Old Testament and you just think of totem poles and these odd-looking golden things and wooden things that people bow down to. But the fact of the matter is, if you're not a genuine believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and the living God through faith in Christ, you are an idolater. It's a fact. That's, that's your religion. If you don't have the true religion, you have idolatry. You're worshipping and serving some created thing, maybe yourself. You could even be an atheist and you're an idolater, worshipping yourself. We Americans, we struggle with our idolatries. Materialism is, is idolatry. Careerism is idolatry. Being in love with your achievements, your academic achievements, your professional achievements, is idolatry. All of these things come close to home, and it's because of idolatry that God moves out in judgment. Now, these people, they crafted a system of religion that was handed down from generation to generation around their idolatry. Well, it's religious idolatry, and you see elaborate systems of it in the, in the East, in Hinduism and Buddhism and other types of forms of idolatry. These people had uh, Asherah poles, which represented the feminine side of deity. Goddesses were frequently worshipped along with the gods, usually through sexual immorality. They also had altars that their hands had made. They offered sacrifices to demon gods. They're not true gods. They're demon gods who do God impersonations. And so these bowed down to that. The whole system, however, is empty because when the judgment comes, when the Assyrians come over the border, they forsake them and run for their lives. They've said, save me, you are my God, but their God can't save them because he doesn't exist. And in that day, they will forsake it. They will run for their lives. They will turn away from the idols that they made and run away from them because they know that they cannot save. But the deepest issue is rejecting God. Look at verse 10. You have forgotten God, your Savior. Uh, You have not remembered the rock, your fortress exchanging the glory of the immortal God for images. That's exactly what they did. It's especially tragic for those ten tribes, the northern tribes of Israel. Think of all that God had done through Moses and Aaron, how he rescued them from the land of slavery by the uh, ten plagues that he uh, demonstrated with a mighty hand and outstretched arm and how he led them through the Red Sea when the water walled up to the right and to the left and they passed right through, two million strong, right through by the power of God. And they went through the other side, and there God provided water out of a rock and manna that came down. They just picked it up off the ground. And how God delivered them for 40 years in the desert and carried them as a father carries his son on his shoulders and brought them right across the Jordan River at flood, stra- flood stage when the water uh, heaped up like a mountain. And they crossed on dry ground. And how they surrounded the walls of Jericho, that mighty walled city. And then they just cried out on the seventh day and the walls came falling down. And they took over the whole promised land by miraculous power. Taking over nations more powerful than they were. And and, and this way they came into a land flowing with milk and honey. And they ate from vineyards they didn't plant. And they lived in houses they didn't build. And all of this done by the hand of God. And it wasn't long after that that they turned away those ten tribes from the God of their heritage, the God of their fathers, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and worship and served foreign gods. And so it says in Jeremiah 2, 11 through 13, this is the greatest tragedy of all time. Has a nation ever changed its gods? Yet they're not gods at all, says Jeremiah, but my people have exchanged their glory. For worthless idols, be appalled at this, O heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me the spring of living water and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Well, the result of this idolatry, of this exchange, is a harvest of incurable pain. God puts a curse on everything they do. Everything they try to do, there's a curse on the work of their hands. Look at verse 10 and 11. You have forgotten God, your Savior. You have not remembered the rock, your fortress. And therefore, though you set out the finest plants and plant imported vines, though on the day you set them out, you make them grow. And in the morning, when you plant them, you bring them to bud. Yet the harvest will be as nothing in the day of disease and incurable pain. What a dreadful final end. And what a terrifying thing it is to have Almighty God as your enemy. To have God fighting everything you do. To have him not bless you when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you rise and lie down. To have God not bless your kneading trough and and your calves and all the agricultural images. You say, we're not farmers. What do these uh, vines have to do with us? Well, all right, translate it then into the 21st century. You invest in a small business and it goes belly up. You leave one job and you go to another thinking things are going to go better for you and they go much worse. You have problems with material possessions. Uh, You have a flood in your home or you have repairs to your car that you can't afford. One thing after another, how can you fight God? Could it be that God is using all of these adverse circumstances to say, look, this is happening to you. You may not have thought Isaiah 17 was relevant to you, but you set out vines and you plant them thinking good things are going to come and nothing comes of it. Could it be you're out of fellowship with God? That God himself is fighting you? Now here it mentions the day of disease and incurable pain. It is true that we can suffer somewhat in this world. We can have pain in this world. We can have incurable diseases. Like we think of AIDS as an incurable disease. You could be laying there suffering from AIDS and wonder, is this a judgment of God on me? Frankly, any disease that takes you out of the world was, in the end incurable, wasn't it? The doctor couldn't cure it, couldn't save you from dying. And so you died. But I don't think that's the ultimate judgment of God, do you? Do not be afraid, said Jesus, of those who kill the body and after that there's nothing more they can do. But be afraid of the one who has power to destroy both soul and body in hell. Death isn't the end. God has appointed for each one of us that we die and then face judgment day in which we give an account for the things done in the body. And so to me the real day of disease and incurable pain is hell. It's a day that will last forever. It is incurable because God will not cure it. And any he cast to hell are cast there forever. There is no rescue. There is no refuge. There is no escape. That is the ultimate end of idolatry. It's the ultimate end, the ultimate judgment of God that he will bring. Now, God in his mercy, God in his kindness gives us samples of that future judgment along the way. While there's still time to repent. You may not think of it as mercy, but we should think of it that way. When judgment comes on other people, like the Tower of Siloam falls, and some people die, Jesus said, you should say, unless we repent, we will all likewise perish. Hurricane Ike didn't come our way. Well, we're fine then. We have our power, but we have our electricity. You're not thinking rightly. When when you turn on CNN and you see some misery for some other people in another part of the world, you should say, unless we repent, we will all likewise perish. That's one message. Another is, there but by the grace of God go I. What can I do of, of the grace that God's given me to help them and to reach out with them and love them? And if you come to Isaiah 17 and say, this is the Syrians and the Ephraimites. What do they have to do with me? Oh, they lived 27 centuries ago. You're missing the point. God is still holy and we're still idolaters and he hasn't changed. And unless we repent, we will all likewise perish. But the ray of hope in the middle of this is that God can bring about a salvation for sinners like you and me. Isn't that sweet? Isn't that magnificent? Look what it says in verse 7 and 8. In that day, men will look to their maker and turn their eyes to the Holy One of Israel. At last they look to him. They will not look to the altars, the work of their hands. They will have no regard for the Asherah poles and the incense altars their fingers have made. They finally turn to the Lord and look to Him. It says in Isaiah 45, Look unto me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. It's the look of faith. CNN's not going to cover the look of faith, friends. <laughs> but it's going on all over the world, praise God. People from every tribe and language and people and nation are hearing the gospel and they're looking at last away from the work of their hands. They're looking up to their maker and they're finding salvation in him through his son, Jesus Christ. I think it's my primary job as a preacher to make Christ crucified almost visible to your eyes. Think about that hymn, Before the Throne of God. At the end it says, Behold him there, the risen lamb. The perfect, spotless, the great I am. Behold him there. How do you see him? By faith. It says in Galatians 3 1, before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was portrayed as crucified. So the Apostle Paul says to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 2 2, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So there, behold him there, the bloody Son of God who shed His blood for idolaters, for sinners like you and me. And in that day, it says, they will have no more regard for the work of their hands. They're going to look to their Maker, their Creator, their Sustainer, and to their Savior, and they will find in Him salvation. Look to Him. Look to Him. A few weeks ago, you heard from Andy Wynn about the bronze serpent, and what a great picture that was of salvation, how Jesus said so. Just as the bronze serpent was lifted up in the the desert, so the Son of Man will be lifted up, that everyone who believes in Him will have eternal life. Simply by looking, not by your good works, the works of your hands. God has no interest in those concerning justification. Just look to Him. Perhaps God brought you here today, and you don't know whether you're saved or not. You don't even know why you came. Maybe you're here with a relative. As though God Himself... We're making his appeal through me. I urge you, be reconciled to God. Trust in him. Look to him. Now, this is an assembly of Christian worship. Most of you come in here with a profession of faith in Christ. Are you done looking to Jesus? Are you finished being saved? Look unto him and be saved. Keep looking. Look unto Him the rest of your life. Realize that there's still idolatries inside our divided hearts. Romans 7 talks all about it. The very thing we hate, we do. Why? Because there are idols still there. And we still bow the knee and give them allegiance. Look unto Him and be saved all the ends of the earth. And in this alone will the raging of the nations be quieted at last. This is where the peace comes from. It's not coming from the United Nations. It's not coming from military action. It's not coming from economic sanctions. It's not coming from a new invention. It's not coming from better food distribution systems. It's not coming from the best negotiator that ever lived or team of negotiators that ever lived. None of that is going to bring peace between the nations. Not at all. You want to know what's going to bring peace between the nations? The actions of our sovereign God. Actions in judgment and actions in salvation. We've talked about the judgment. He's going to clean it all up. He's going to come back in glorious power. And he's going to destroy the final regime, the final nation, that one world nation under the Antichrist. And and the dragon, the devil, stands by the sea, remember? And up out of the sea comes the beast from the sea. What does the sea represent? The raging sea. It's right here in, in Isaiah 17. It's the nations, the turbulent nations. And up out of the nations comes the Antichrist. It's the same image in Daniel 7. He has a dream and the winds are blowing over the turbulent sea and up out of it come four beasts, one after the other. And so up out of the sea comes the the nation, the final form of that, the Antichrist, doing the bidding of the dragon, of Satan. And up he comes. And so still raging, still turbulent, until the Lord Jesus comes back in all his glory, amen, and destroys the Antichrist and destroys the devil and gets rid of the sea... For it says in Revelation 21.1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I really link that right back to Isaiah 17.12. The turbulent, crashing waves of rebellion against Almighty God is over. And there's going to be this quiet, peaceful, loving group of, of people from every tribe and language and people and nation who are all focused on the throne of Christ. And he will reign forever and ever over a peaceful multitude. And the time of rebellion will end. And your heart will be at peace with God and with one another. And why? Because it says in Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, what do we have? Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And as a result of that, we have peace with one another. And why? Because Jesus Christ paid our price for us. Isaiah 53 and verse 5. It says, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon Him. And by His wounds we are healed. The punishment that brought us what? Peace. That's where it's going to happen, friends. That's where the raging turbulence of the nations will end at last. At the end of the world. When Jesus comes and establishes His throne and then it will be true what it says in Zechariah 1 we have gone throughout the earth and found the whole world at rest and at peace oh how sweet will that be so there are two looks we'll see Christ in two different ways the first is the look of faith that can happen right now you just close your physical eyes and you can look with your mind eyes and you can see Christ crucified you can also see Christ resurrected you can see Christ reigning on the throne you can see Christ returning in glory all right, so look of faith. You can see him that way or you can wait and you can just see him with your eyes. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. Revelation 1. You'll see him either way. I would urge you to see him now. See him today by faith so that all your sins can be forgiven. Close with me in prayer.